So today we are starting a new sermon series, just uh, three sermons leading up to Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve, by the way, we will be here. It will be at 4 p.m. You'll be able to be on the deck or inside, and so just make a note of that. But Christmas, as we talk about Christmas, we talk about Advent. That's probably a term that you guys have heard, you know, Advent calendars and that whole thing. Uh, But what is the meaning of Advent? And actually, Advent simply means uh, coming or arrival or the manifestation. And so when we talk about the advent of Christ, we're basically talking about the arrival of Christ, the manifestation of Christ when Christ came and in his incarnation, he was born and came to the earth. And so the question is, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come at all? And if you ask that question and you were going to ask that to, uh, you know, just the world around you and the Twitter sphere, which everybody knows is real life. That was sarcasm, by the way. Um, you would get answers like this. Well, Jesus came to be an example. Like, that's why Jesus came, to show us how to live. And that is, it's true. Jesus was an example to us, but he came for more reasons than that. Or people will say, well, to start a new religion. You know, and that puts him on the same level of so many other men and women who have started religions over the years. Or people will say things like, well, to teach us how to love. And he just wants to show us how to love people and to defeat Rome. That's what Simon the Zealot thought and others. Maybe to be a social warrior. I mean, he did hang out with a lot of prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors and gluttons and drunkards and that kind of thing. Maybe he just came to help the down and out or to defend truth and justice. Maybe that's why he came. And maybe some of these things fall into your line of thinking. And the question is, why did Jesus actually come? And it really would be an interesting study to do for all of us. We don't have enough time in three weeks. But to go through and look in a concordance for words like came and come and appeared and as they relate to Christ and see all what the scriptures say about why Jesus came, why he appeared, the manner of his coming, what his coming accomplished. But today we're going to focus on one thing. Next week we're going to focus on another thing. The following Christmas Eve we're going to focus on another thing, just so you know. What are we focusing on today? Just one verse, and that verse is 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so today, why are we, what are we talking about? Why are we talking about this? Because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's what we want to get out of today's passage, out of today's sermon. So we're going to break um, this verse down into two parts. We're going to explain the first part, then the second part. So it begins by John saying, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. That's a really light, John. Thank you. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Um, You need to realize that God doesn't want us to sin. In 1 John chapter 2, this is what we read. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's what John says in 1 John 2. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So there's bad news and there's good news. Notice here in 1 John 2, John doesn't say, uh, I I don't want you to habitually sin. But, you know, like other sins, that's fine. Like little occasional sins, God overlooks. That's not what John says. John's hope is that sin has no place in our lives. He's not saying just occasional acts of rebellion are acceptable. 
This is like saying to your spouse, it was just a one-night stand. It's not habitual. All right? It's not acceptable. So realistically, we know that we aren't going to live perfect lives. Um, and, but when we do sin, the glorious thing is that we're not a hopeless people. When we do sin, we have an advocate. Another word for advocate is champion, okay? And so you think of David and Goliath. David stands as a champion on behalf of the Israelites. Goliath stands on a cha- as a champion on behalf of the Palestinians. And what happens? Um, the champion of the Jews defeats the champion of the enemy on behalf of the army. Jesus stands as your champion, as your advocate when we do sin. And so we have hope. But this specifically is not what is being discussed in 1 John chapter 3, but I did want to bring it up so that we would be on the same page. Because in 1 John chapter 3, John is talking about practicing sin. And practicing sin is another level. Now, if you were going to look up the term practice, it's one of the words that hasn't been redefined in 2020 in the Oxford Dictionary. And um, the word is defined as this, to perform repeatedly or regularly in order to improve one's proficiency. So according to that definition, if you're practicing sin, you're intentionally doing it so that you get better at it, okay? What does that look like? Well, that looks like you're getting really good at clearing your cookies so your spouse doesn't find out, right? I don't mean eating your cookies, guys. Talking about the internet, okay? You're getting really good at hiding uh, money from the government. You're getting really good at making sure people don't know that you're gossiping about them. You're practicing sin, all right? That's what that definition would mean. The second definition of practice would be to carry out or perform habitually or regularly. Like maybe your family is in the practice of having pizza movie night on Fridays, all right? And so that's the other term of practice. In other words, you do this all the time. You feel no remorse about it. It doesn't bother you. It is your custom to embrace this sin. It's just who I am. I'm an angry person. I punch people in the face, right? That kind of idea. It's just my practice. So John, if you're in the habit of doing that, John has ridiculously strong words for you. What did he say? It's not my words. What did he say? You are of the devil. Well, what does that mean? Because that makes me a little uncomfortable. In a sense, it means that the one who practices sinning is giving their allegiance to him. In other words, they're a tool in the grimy paw of the adversary. If you're in the habit of improving your sinful struggles without remorse, without repentance, those are key words, then essentially John is saying that you are doing Satan's work. Now, how can John make such a bold claim? Well, Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 8, verse 44, when he said, you're of their fa- your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character because that's what he is, a liar, the father of lies. In other words, the devil has been practicing and getting better at sin and rebellion since the beginning. And when we practice lawlessness, deceit, rebellion, sin, we're walking in his footsteps. Now listen, hear me. This is the way all mankind once walked, and maybe some still do. 
as tools in Satan's hand, doing his will, spreading his vile fame, his corruption like a contagion. Now, even the best of us in this room, and I'm not pointing at my chest as an example of the best of us, even the best of us in this room, okay, have habitual struggles with pride, with frustration, with anger, self-centeredness. The law of God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm pretty sure I don't know what that means, nor how to do it. And if this were the end of the sermon, it would be a terrible sermon. But you know, what happens in the scriptures is they give us truth, and then they give us application. That's called the indicative before the imperative. They give us truth, and then the truth sets us free. Because the reality is this. If John's purpose in writing was to say to you, you're all terrible, that's it, bye-bye, then John would be very depressing. But don't get hung up on sentence number one without reading sentence number two. The reason the Son of God appeared was what? To destroy the works of the devil. So we return to our initial question. Why did God send his son? Why did God send his son? To be an example, to start a new religion, to pat us on the head, to teach us how to love, to defeat Rome? Why? John gives us the purpose for the revelation, the advent, the appearance, the coming, the arrival of God's son. And he tells us specifically and clearly, for this purpose, the son of God was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? Why does Advent matter? Why is the incarnation important? Why celebrate him at all? How would Emmanuel ransom captive Israel and break the chains of exile? Because of God's intended purpose for his manifestation to destroy the works of the devil. Now I want you to consider that since before Adam and Eve rebelled, Satan has been laying the foundation of lawlessness and rebellion. Satan has, in essence, been building an evil empire brick by brick, working, practicing to dethrone God, were it possible. But in his arrogance, he thinks that it is. Jesus came to destroy all that. Do any of you remember the final scene in Return of the King? Like, can I just get one other person to raise their hand? Thanks, Breton. A couple people. We're not nerds. We're geeks. Get it right. All right? Know your nomenclature. So in that final scene of the return of the king, the ring of power is, well, kind of falls into Mount Doom, technically. But anyway, the obliteration of the deceiver, Sauron, who deceived all of the leaders by giving them corrupt rings to control them. It's an allegory for sin, Okay. The obliteration of the deceiver is apparent. By the way, J.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote this, R.R. Tolkien, R.R. Tolkien, he's the guy who led C.S. Lewis to the Lord, you know, penned all of the foundation for Lord of the Rings as a young man in the trenches of World War I as he saw the, tr the, the sinful heart of man destroy. And that's what all of this was birthed out of. And so in the obliteration of that, Final deceiver, this is what we see. The temple, the tower of Barador, it begins to collapse. That's this black tower with this eye atop, this eye 
wreathed in fire. And as the tower begins to collapse, the eye of power begins panicking and looking this way and that way. It's piercing gaze going all manner out of whack. And you see this massive army, the army of the evil one. They are bent on the destruction of all that is good in the world. Their goal is to destroy the race of man from all of Middle Earth. And they begin to panic and run away as their champion falls to the ground. And as the tower hits the ground and the eye of power explodes in a burst of finality, the ground itself cracks as if it is finally released from its own bondage, swallowing up this invading army. Because all creation groans for redemption and to see the unveiling of the sons of God. And in this book, in this movie, the work of Sauron, the deceiver, is destroyed just like that in a moment. You see, as Jesus, innocent, hung on the cross, surrounded by Satan and his minions, in the midst of an empire that the deceiver had been building since Adam handed the keys to the kingdom over to the dark one, Jesus is there. God pours out his wrath on his son instead of on me, instead of on you, that Jesus pays the fullness for our sin because the wages of sin is death and he was an innocent, spotless lamb. And the fullness of punishment is poured out upon Christ as he cries out, it is finished. It is paid in full. Because why? Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. All that he had been building was just a tower of cards. Yet Satan in his arrogance thought it would withstand. You know, it's an interesting word, the word for destroy here in 1 John 3, 8. It's the Greek word luo. I just say that so Breton's impressed. I looked it up online. Now, what's interesting about that word is if you go and look at the other ways that John uses it, in the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation. I just want to point out some of these uses. It can be translated, by the way, loose or break or destroy. In John 1:27, it refers to a literal loosing of Jesus' sandals. When John says, I am not worthy to luo Jesus' sandals because he is too holy. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus uses it to, to refer to the destruction of his body when he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Of course, the temple he was referring to was his body. It's the same word. John 5, 18, the Pharisees want to kill Jesus because they say he is destroying Luo, the, the Sabbath. John 7, 23, they accuse him of destroying the law of Moses because he healed on the Sabbath, doing a good work. In John 10, 35, Jesus says that these things must be fulfilled because the word of God cannot be destroyed or broken. In John eleven forty four, probably my favorite at the resurrection of Lazarus, when Jesus commands that he be released from the grave clothes with which he was bound, he uses this word, luo, to basically release, untie, destroy, remove him from his bondage. Think about the irony of that. 
that as Lazarus is bound in his linen cloth because he was dead for four days and now Jesus revives him, Jesus is not just going to be breaking the linen cloths, but he broke death to bring him back to life. Look at more poetic irony in the way that John uses this word. By the way, the Hebrew authors who thought Hebrew, like Paul thinks Greek, he thinks linear. Hebrew authors, they don't think the same way that Greek-influenced authors think. Hebrew is a much more poetic language. Greek is a mathematical language. But think about some of the poetic irony in the words that John, where John uses this word. Jesus was unable to be destroyed because Jesus said, truly, no man takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord and I take it back up again. Jesus was so indestructible that poetically you couldn't even destroy his sandal. If you couldn't destroy his sandal, certainly you couldn't destroy the God who was man. Jesus' body, the true temple, was destroyed so that the works of the devil might be obliterated. The Pharisees accused Jesus of destroying the Sabbath when it was actually the destruction of his body that would bring God's people into the true Sabbath, which is the rest that we have in Christ, the finished death, burial, and resurrection of the risen lamb. They accused Jesus of destroying or breaking the law of Moses when it was actually Jesus alone who fulfilled the law of Moses on our behalf since we live as constant lawbreakers. That was our previous reality before Christ. And so Jesus didn't destroy the law of Moses. Actually, Jesus says quite clearly in the book of Matthew, I did not come to destroy the law of Moses, but to fulfill the law of Moses. It is Jesus' obedience to the law and the prophets, which prophesy concerning the Christ, that heals us and fulfills the law, not destroys the law. It is precisely because the law, that, because the law cannot be broken that Jesus would come in the fullness of time, born to a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. It was because of the law of God, which cannot be broken, that there had to be blood for atonement so that the unbreakable law could be fulfilled and justice could be done, that Jesus' body was destroyed because of the indestructible, unchanging word of God. In other words, Jesus destroyed death by being destroyed willingly. Do you remember the story of the Trojan horse? They're fighting. They finally build a wooden horse and they leave it outside the gates as a gift. And they bring the wooden horse, this big wooden horse, into the city and they're like, this thing is sweet. And then they go to bed and at night there's a little trap door in the Trojan horse. The army climbs out through the Trojan horse and they ransack the city from the inside out. Do you realize this is what Jesus did when he died? I truly believe, and I think I can prove it biblically, that Satan thought he won when Jesus is dead on the cross. And then Jesus descends into death, so to say, preaches to the captives, and then destroys death from the inside out like the ultimate Rambo. As a secret weapon that in his arrogance, Satan truly thought he 
would win. That's why Jesus at the transfiguration, he's on Mount Hermon, and he, he's transfigured into the glory of God. He comes down, and he looks at Peter, and he says, I will build my church in the gates of hell, pointing at Mount Hermon, which is where the Jews believed the fallen angels made first contact, by the way, the Nephilim back in Genesis chapter 5 and 6. He comes down there. He points at what, was, what the ancient Near East believed was the gate of Hades, and he says, I will build my church in the gate of hell. The gate of Hades will not prevail against it. And from that point out, Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer and die, but in three days he would raise from the grave. And we see all of the heat turned up as they pursue Christ to his death in those final days. Truly, Satan thought he was tricking Jesus and winning this battle. But Jesus, like a secret weapon, destroyed death from the inside out. How did Jesus destroy death? He practiced righteousness and love, living a perfect life. He shouldered the penalty for practicing sin and lawlessness despite his innocence. He carried the burden of God's wrath as the innocent sacrificial lamb of God. Paul, who wrote 2 Corinthians and about half the New Testament, summarizes it like this. For our sake, he, Jesus, May, or he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Talk about a great Christmas present. You give Jesus a Christmas box filled with your sinful, disgusting life, and Jesus gives you a Christmas box filled with his righteousness, and he says, let's exchange. Jesus literally broke the DNA of sin by coming as a new Adam, creating a new spiritual lineage, one that practices the work of their father instead of the work of their previous father, the enemy. That's what Paul's explaining in Romans. And so the question is this. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. What are the implications for such an amazing work? And there's three of them that I want to highlight. The first one is this. These are theological terms. Justification. Justification. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and in so doing, Jesus destroyed sin's penalty in your life. Jesus destroyed sin's penalty in your life. In other words, Paul summarizes it in Romans 8.1 beautifully. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, saving faith Saving faith is not found in showing up at 10 a.m. at 2 Mile. Saving faith is not found in reading the word or giving to people in need. Saving faith is found in confessing our desperate need for Christ and receiving his forgiveness from the punishment that we deserve. By humbly receiving the truth that Christ bore my penalty for my sins, therefore I can stand justified before God, my judge. Why? Not because I'm innocent, but because my penalty of death has been paid by one who alone is sufficient to pay for it. I do not need to be justified again and again. He was sacrificed once for all because he's greater than the Old Testament sacrificial system. That's what the author of Hebrews argues in part. And it is enough for me, the sacrifice of Christ. And so now, practically, for those who are reborn in Christ, there is no 
condemnation because the law of the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And so true believers are free, saved from sin's penalty. That's a past reality. The second thing that Jesus' death, destroying the works of the devil, accomplished is what's called sanctification. Jesus came to destroy the power of sin in your life today. Jesus didn't just come to give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. Jesus came to destroy the power of sin in your life today. He has set you free from the power of sin and death. How? By destroying it. He destroyed it. The Bible says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. It says that the old has gone, the new has come, and is coming more and more because he's also making all things new. We are new, but we're being made new. Already, not yet. In progress, but work complete. We are set free, but we are being set free more and more. These are the tensions of justification and sanctification. Without Christ, before being reborn, or what we would say theologically, before being regenerated by his spirit, we were unable to fulfill God's desire and design. The righteousness of man is like filthy rags. But by his grace and because of his restoration, we now have the capacity. The image that we often use when we teach our doctrine class is that Adam and Eve stood atop of a building and they jumped off the building and then they were falling. And they had babies. And those babies were born mid-fall. The baby, as it grows up, can look up at the falling sky and the passing building and say, I'm falling. But it can do nothing to stop the fall. Adam and Eve already jumped off the building. You see, without Christ, we are unable to fulfill God's desire and design. But by the Spirit of God, as reborn, regenerate people, we now have a precious, wonderful gift the Spirit of Jesus, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who empowers us and equips us to that end. Having once been slaves to sin, we are now free to serve God. And so consider the old man dead. Stop feeding the dead dog. It's dead. That's why Paul says don't use your freedom, abusing it for a occasion of the flesh. But use your freedom to practice righteousness. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. We're being saved from the power of sin in our lives. And 1 John 2, 1, little children, when you do sin, and sin you will, remember you have an advocate who is standing on your behalf. And when you start condemning yourself because, well, I feel like garbage, that's because you're listening to the lies of the enemy. You're a new creation. There is therefore now no condemnation. Jesus corrects. He doesn't punish. The punishment's been poured out upon the Son. Now when he brings things up to your mind, it's to correct you. And my goodness, he corrects like a surgeon. He doesn't give like a vague like, oh, you're terrible. That's Satan. 
That's not how Jesus convicts. Jesus convicts like a surgeon where you say, I shouldn't have said that word to that person. That's how Jesus convicts. See, sanctification, what does it look like on the ground? This is an illustration. All illustrations will fall flat at one point in time. But you are a muddy pond. You were a muddy pond with a muddy source that was just pumping mud into this pond. And in Christ, the old source is stopped up and a new source of the river of life is then put in place. And that new source of the river of life starts diluting that muddy pond with fresh, clean water that comes from the river of life. And the reality is that over time and maturation, it dilutes more and more. And that's why as you grow older, your sin becomes even more apparent because it's easier to see dirt in a clear pond than to see dirt in a muddy pond when everything's muddy. And as we allow the river of life to pump its life-giving river stronger and stronger into our lives, it dilutes it all the more. And then we remember that upon our death or Christ's return, the job will be finished because he who began it, in other words, he began it, will bring it about to completion, Philippians 1.6. And what does completion look like? Our third point, glorification. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and what does that mean for your future? That Jesus will ultimately and with finality destroy sin's presence in your life and in all creation because Jesus is making all things new. See, we are called, commanded, implored, beckoned to overcome, to persevere, to fight for holiness, to run the marathon, to take off and put on. These are all active words. Paul says that I I discipline my body. I don't box like I'm boxing the air. When we die, when we fought the good fight, Realize that even Paul, Paul is on, I mean, who knows? He's close to death writing his final letter. He knows he's being poured out like a drink offering. And Paul, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. And Paul says, Timothy, I did it. I finished the race. I proved myself one of God's elect. As if any of us doubted that Paul wasn't actually born again. But in Paul's mind, persevering to the end, that is part of salvation. We're called to persevere. And when we die and we finish the race and we fought the good fight, we will enter into the rest of the Lord forever. The rest of work, which the seventh day of creation, which prefigures the Sabbath, points to. He will glorify us as he himself is glorified because he's a first fruit of this new humanity. Sin will no longer have any hold over us. There will be no more death, no more disease, no more tears of sadness because evil cannot exist in his holy, all-consuming presence. Today, you may feel assailed by sin at every angle, but one day sin will be no more. Because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And we will be saved from sin's presence, ultimately. 
The bottom line is this. You can look at the world around you and you can get sidetracked into much worry and concern. And you can look at the things that are on the horizon and panic. But you need to rest in the fact that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil in your life and in the world. And guess what? Jesus is coming again to ultimately and with finality destroy the works of the devil. And the next time he comes, he has a tattoo on his hip and a sword in his mouth. He's not riding a donkey for peace. He's riding a war stallion. Jesus is coming back. And evil will be fully purged. And so we rest in the finished work of Christ and we pray, come quickly, Jesus. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. What I'd like you to do now is turn to your table. If you're sitting alone, please uh, either pull your chair up or talk to someone next to the table if you don't feel comfortable. And I want you to talk through some of those questions. What struck you the most about this truth. How does Jesus, as the work of the devil destroying Savior, bring you into a deeper sense of awe and worship? Which truth of salvation today do you need to be most reminded of? Justification, God has freed us from the penalty of sin, sanctification, that God's destroying the power of sin in your life today, or glorification, that ultimately Jesus will destroy sin's presence. Which of those is most therapeutic to your soul this morning? And then how can you remind yourself, your family, and your friends about the sin and death-destroying power of Christ this Christmas? So wrestle through those questions, talk about them for a few minutes. Join up with people at tables next to you if you're by yourself, please.